My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. My guest this week is the head of content and education for the organization Thank God for Bitcoin, which helps Christians understand and use Bitcoin to the glory of God and for the good of people everywhere. Please welcome Jordan Bush. You are the Renaissance. It probably won't surprise you all to know that some of my least popular episodes are the ones that cover Bitcoin. It won't surprise you because I imagine you guys look in your podcast apps at these episodes and say, Bitcoin again, like a kid looking at green beans on his plate. But here's the thing I need you to get. Bitcoin matters, including to the life and future of a Christian householder, husband, and father. This isn't just some interesting hobby that I'm subjecting you to. Believe me, I have those, and the day is coming when you will be subject to them. <laughs> However, until then, I barrage you with Bitcoin episodes in the ongoing hopes that someday, one of you, just one of you, will listen, get the lights turned on, and become an advocate for this technology in not just your home, but those of your loved ones as well. Which is why, believe it or not, I've undergone a strategy in the guests I've booked about the topic. I've wanted to pull together experts who can each help you examine it in a different way. From the geopolitical case in Laser Hoddle, which is probably my best episode ever, to the boots on the ground basics with the Bitcoin coach. From the big picture ideas of Tomer Strolight to Bitcoin and masculinity with Alex Svetsky. Andrew Howard and I chatted about Bitcoin before we got into it over his departure from Christianity, because Christian Bitcoiners are a thing. I even had on Jimmy Song recently to talk about how, in very real terms, Fiat currency ruins everything. Everything? Yes, everything. Put them together and I'm trying to paint a picture for you of how vast, complicated, and fascinating a topic that Bitcoin is, and how relevant it is to your life, even if you don't see it yet. But what I haven't tackled is the moral case for Bitcoin, as in how Bitcoin and money in general is a matter of objective right and wrong. Transcendent principles are at play here. Yes, I know we're told that technology is morally neutral. It's all on how you use it, and since money is a technology, money must also be morally neutral. Now, I hate to break it to you, but that is not the case. Our money today, fiat currency, is absolutely broken, desperately wicked, and is being used to accelerate the moral decline of the world straight into the pit. Even if you don't believe me right now, I ask you to take that preceding statement seriously, as seriously as Morpheus' statement, you're a slave, Neo born into a prison you can neither see, nor taste, nor touch. Neo didn't get it in that moment, and neither does the audience. Not really. Not like we will. Despite the dark, decrepit, rain-soaked surroundings basically screaming that something is wrong. Once you see this, I mean really see it, it shakes you. In the same way, whether your money jingles, folds, or taps, the mechanics behind it today are evil, and we are participants in that system. And I care about Bitcoin for two reasons. First, because there are faithful men and women around the world who are talking openly about this. And second, because they are also working to build and propagate an alternative that I'm not theologically adept enough to say is good, but I know for sure it isn't wicked. And thank God for that. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Jordan Bush, and he's a husband, father, author, and the head of content and education for Thank God for Bitcoin. Thank God for Bitcoin? Like, whoa, slow down there, right? Well, not so fast. 
Because once you hear Jordan speak, and especially read his book, you'll see that maybe there's something to that idea, that perhaps there's a way out from the slow societal slide downward, an exit from inflation and all the evil that it funds, and a way to protect your hard-earned wealth from confiscation, slow or fast. Does that sound like something worth thanking God for? I think so, and Jordan does too, which is why he also hosts the Thank God for Bitcoin conference where we met, and is also working on a children's book, and much more. Because Jordan wants the world, including families with kids of all ages, to know that there's an alternative to our broken money, a better and more sure foundation to build society upon, and a way to preserve our wealth for future generations. Morpheus offered Neo a choice of a red pill or a blue. As it turns out, Bitcoin has its own pill, and it's orange. So, get your glass of water and your black leather trench coat, and let's go. Just don't touch the mirror. In our conversation, Jordan and I discussed why our money is sick, church planting and hyperinflation, World War II, Bretton Woods, and U.S. financial abuses, the dynamic of sowing and reaping, men as stewards, not gods, why we should thank God for Bitcoin, and finally, Bitcoin on offense versus defense. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. This show more than doubled in size during 2023, and we're getting all warmed up for 2024. You can help that effort by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, plus a five-star rating on Spotify. Plus, share this episode or another one of your favorites with a friend. Don't forget that my new Renaissance of Men, The Righteous Will Never Be Shaken shirts are available now at Source Christian Apparel. Source is run by two faithful Christian wives, Julia and Anna, who stepped back from their careers to build a stay-at-home business and support their husbands, and it's an honor to support them. So go visit SourceChristianApparel.com right now to get your limited-run Righteous tee designed by one of the top designers in the space and printed on a super soft material. Again, go to SourceChristianApparel.com right now to get yours today. The Renaissance of Men podcast is proudly sponsored by Reformation Coffee, purveyors of fine coffee beans hand-roasted by Pastor Brandon Lansdowne and his family in Springfield, Missouri. Reformation Coffee is a big part of my daily routine. I brew my pour-over cup in the morning, then read my Bible, letting my beard grow long and becoming the extremist I always warned myself about. Feels good, man. And you can participate in Brandon's vision to overthrow the dominion of woke globalist coffee by going to ReformationCoffee.com right now and ordering one of their four signature roasts. Also, use the code SUBFREE when you sign up for regular coffee delivery to get one free 12-ounce bag on the house. Again, visit ReformationCoffee.com right now, and when you sign up for regular coffee delivery, use the code SUBFREE for one free 12-ounce bag of coffee. And please welcome this week's guest on the podcast, the head of content and education for Thank God for Bitcoin, Jordan Bush. Hey, Jordan, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Hey, Will. Good to be with you. This has been a long time coming. We met back at your conference, uh, what was it, back in May, right? April, May yep. of last year? Yeah, May of this last year. Yep. Th- that was so crazy because I, um, I went to the Trad Dad conference in Battleground, Washington with, uh, with C.R. Wiley. And that was where I found out that he was speaking at your conference. And I think I just yeah. bought a plane ticket and was out there like just a couple of <laughs> weeks later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was. We were super glad to have him there, and then again, uh, surprised to have you there, and excited to have you there. Yeah, it was. It was a really good time. I'm really glad I came out. So, um, all right. So, so I want to. 
I want to I want to put you on the spot a little bit just out just out of the gate. Cool. All right, let's go. Okay, so Bitcoin is one of my favorite topics to cover, right? right. However, they are not my most popular episodes. Yeah. And so what that says to me is that there is some disconnect between my audience, which are very godly Christian men and women, and Bitcoin. Now, your conference is thank God for Bitcoin. <laughs> so I want to pitch you this fastball right down the middle to start with, and then we'll unpack it from there. Hit me. Why should we be thanking God for Bitcoin? Yeah, I, I am. Again, it's a great question. Uh, I, I also will say that we were, so thank God for Bitcoin, the, the business comes from, and the, the conference come from the book. Uh, and when we were going through the process of writing and, and then naming the book, we we all, there was eight of us who helped collaborate in the book, and there was probably 15 or 20 different names that we were kicking around. And when we first started listing them all, I heard thank God for Bitcoin. And I thought to myself and even said to my wife, well, at least we know the one that it won't be, which is like, thank God for Bitcoin. <laughs> Because um, <laughs> I was the only one working at that point in vocational ministry, super sensitive to to the cringe and to the, I mean, anything that could you know be seen as trivializing, uh, you know, the things of the Lord. I just was like the last anathema to me, the last thing I would ever want to do. And then just over time, the more that I thought about it, I was like, it actually is kind of catchy, you know, and it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and it is true. Like, I mean, if 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 this is a good thing, you know, James says if, if that every good and perfect gift is from above and and comes from God, and and so like it, you know, what else should we do with this thing other than thank God for for it? Um, so as far as the reason why I think Christians should thank God uh, for Bitcoin, a lot of it comes down to um, the nature of what money is and the nature of what money, uh, how it works, uh, how it's worked historically, how it, and the effects that it has on our lives, uh, and and understanding that the mechanisms of how money work uh, reveal what we believe about about God and about people and about a lot of other things. So um, so I think that's a big part of it is once you understand how Bitcoin works and once you understand God's priorities, uh, as crazy as it sounds, Bitcoin is actually better uh, money than the money that we've gotten used to using. Uh, and so the the... Yeah, just it, it's it's there's a lot to it. Again, this is a longer question yeah, that we yeah. can you know get more into. But like, I think that's the biggest thing is uh, God's been using the foolish things of the world to shame the wise for you know millennium, and so why would He do anything else? It's it's pretty funny to me. I, I laugh about it all the time that that God would use something like magic internet money to uh, to shame all these other you know big national and international currencies. Uh, you have, you have, as they, as they crumble progressively, Bitcoin is, you know, has begun its ascent. So, um, mm-hmm. so, so let's, uh, let, yes, I agree. And let's, let's drill into this because, yeah. because I, I, I think the journey of coming to understand Bitcoin, the, yeah. uh, the, one of the first big steps of it is not necessarily about Bitcoin at all. Yeah. It's about the money that we use currently. And that involves such a giant process of disillusionment. Like in a literal sense, there's disillusionment in the moral sense, which is like losing hope, like I'm so disillusioned. But then there's like, I mean, literally like disillusion, stripping the illusions away of what yeah. the money that we currently use every day is. So yeah. so let's, and, and, then, and then what I liked about what you did in the Thank God for Bitcoin book and what uh, Jimmy Song did in his Fiat Ruins Everything book. He was a guest. Thank you for connecting with me with him, by the way. He yeah, was a guest a couple months ago. Yeah. Is he making the moral case of not only is the money that we're currently using bad, it's actually 
immoral in, in, in a very powerful way. So maybe we'll start there and start building the case yeah. up from there. Yeah, sure. I think that's a great way to do it. Uh, and the reason for that would be like Jesus, one of the things that Jesus said was that those who are well have no need of a physician. It's those who are sick. And so in a lot of cases, the, the initial resistance that people have, one of the sources of initial resistance that people have to Bitcoin is they don't see the problem that Bitcoin was created to solve. They don't right. they don't recognize it as, as that big of a deal or they don't see it at all. And so it's it's been something that they're just like, why would I need to spend my time? And I, I honestly am very sympathetic and that makes a lot of sense. Um, and so again, a lot of what we, a lot of what my job and my work consists of is helping you know, just lay out the things that are wrong with the existing system and the way that it's negatively affecting uh, people and then the work of, you know, God's work all around the world, the people who are trying to do God's work around the world. Um, so the, again, we can, we'll go a little bit deeper uh, in a little bit, but probably the easiest way to get into this is just kind of talk about uh, my my background and, and the way that I got involved in Bitcoin. So yes, I was a, um, I grew up in a Christian home went through, uh, you know, went, was in church all my life, uh, ended up going to a Bible Institute, uh, and then continued on and finished, uh, got my degree from a, a Bible college. I studied Bible philosophy and biblical languages, uh, and I wanted to be a missionary. And so my wife and I got married and over the course of a few years, we raised support, uh, and then went to, uh, Montevideo, Uruguay, uh, to be, uh, church planters there. So we get there and we were, we were thinking that, uh, you know, just what would that consist of? Well, we're going to go and and we're going to preach the gospel to the people of Uruguay, uh, specifically a neighborhood. And when I say neighborhood, think larger neighbors of 500,000 people thereabouts, um, called Positos, where there are very few churches. It's a very secular, uh, city, very secular place. Um, this was the more upper middle class part of this city, and so we were going there to to be a light in in a very dark place, a place that has you know, I mean, where almost half the country identifies as uh, atheist or agnostic, and so Whoa. that's kind of what we anticipated life and ministry looking like. When we got there, uh, within the first year that we were there, uh, the church was planted, and about half of our church members were Venezuelan immigrants, and so. You know, as as that happened, that we were not expecting that, and so as we started to get to know these people, we started to hear their stories, and you know, ask the question, "Why are you here? <laughs> why why are there so many of you coming now? And you know, what made you have to leave your your home in Venezuela?" And so they began to you know unpack, and we began to do work outside of that to try to understand this as well. They began to just talk about how the government of, of Venezuela hyperinflated their currency. Mm. Uh, that took the form of the government. Uh, and, you know, different politicians made uh, increasingly costly promises to the electorate to try to get elected. So if you elect me, I'll give you this free thing. If you elect me, you know, me, I'll give you this free thing. And uh, and so over time, those promises increase. And the way that they then followed through on those uh, promises was by printing more of the, you know, Venezuelan Bolivar is the name of their currency. So could they just continue go to wrong. Print. Yeah, exactly. What could, this sounds like a great plan. You know, this is easy. Uh, and so, so yeah, exactly. So they keep printing more and more money. Um, they keep funding more and more of these welfare programs effectively and giving out more and more uh, money, especially to their, to their friends and doing, you know, giving sweetheart deals to their, you know, people who are uh, aligned with them and favorable to them, lending power to them. And so over the course of a number of years, you get to the point where the money literally became worthless. 
and so, I mean, to the point that people are throwing it in the street, using it to, you know, to start fires. <laughs> I mean, it just became worthless. And, you know, this took the form of this isn't just limited to the extreme poor. Uh, we had people who were Venezuelan friends of ours who, uh, you know, were doctors, economists, uh, and different different high level jobs who at one point were making six figures in dollar terms every year. And then who over the course of a number of, you know, three or two or three, four years, they weren't even able to pay the rent. And so so we just got to see man, this, the, the ethics of money production, there are ethical concerns within this, uh, you know, field of money production. Uh, it's not something that you're ever going to hear sermons about. It's not something that you're ever going to hear politicians talk about. Um, it's because it, it's philosophical and, and we just, our level of political discourse in the United States and most other places is, is just not at that level. Mm-hmm. And so we just experienced, you know, this, this is what's going on. So then me, the philosophy major, I kind of went down even deeper and was just trying to understand, well, is this, is this a local to Venezuela thing primarily? Is there something unique that's, um, you know, resulting or causing it to happen there? And the thing that I just, that I think that I realized as I studied it was that almost every currency in Latin America and in South America has failed three to four times since a very important period. Uh, and that was in the year 1971 when the U S went off the gold standard. Yeah. So, so seeing that that was, so seeing that that was the, that that had happened everywhere, this was your, uh, what we were experiencing seeing in Venezuela was just the latest, you know, this is just the one that's happening today. There, this had happened numerous times. Uh, and so the, the consequences of that are huge for normal people. So imagine that you, you know, will you want to start this podcast? Uh, you're living in South America. Let's just put it at, you know, Venezuela. You're trying to start your podcast. Um, you do all kinds of work to, you know, create excess, uh, excess capital so that you can go buy a, you know, a good microphone and all these different things. You, you deny yourself, you work, you save this money, and then you go out and, you know, you're, you're getting ready to buy all of these things that you're saving money for. And, over the course of this time, the money's getting devalued. And so when you go to buy, you know, let's say it takes you a year, <laughs> say it takes you a year to, to save up for a car, save up for your podcast equipment, whatever. And you, you then go to buy the pod, the podcast equipment. The dynamic that happens is that the, the money becomes significantly more worthless over time. And so the nominal cost of these things that you want to buy have actually increased. So they might've been $150 to start out with, and now they're $300. Or now they're $450. And so it, it just creates this dynamic where normal people who are working and saving are penalized. Um, they, are, they're, they just basically are, are stolen from. It's not just penalized. They're, they're stolen from. Their purchasing power is stolen from them by virtue of the actions of the people who are rapidly devaluing the money supply by creating more of it. Um, so that's that's kind of what I, I started to realize. This is this is a, a widespread problem, um, and it's it's happening in lots of places. And again, it's it's not just affecting these big government level problems. Uh, one of the things that we we experienced in Uruguay was that very few churches. There were very few churches. There were very few full time pastors. Uh, so that just means there's less and less time for the the pastors who are there to be able to minister. And then there's very few churches that can afford church buildings because of this monetary devaluation uh, dynamic. And so you have many churches that are perpetually weak and get weaker with every year that goes by because their money's getting more and more worthless. And so as we, as I started to kind of 
see that dynamic, I started like, I just saw this is, this is an existential threat for not just normal people, but also the ministry of the gospel in these places. Um, there's, there's less and less resources in both in the form of money and time for both Christians who are living in these places to, to be able to minister. Uh, and also on top of that, it's also uh, for the missions organizations that are sending out um, missionaries into these places, their, their budgets are affected as well. Um, you know, they, they constantly are needing to go out and raise more and more support to fund things like, uh, you know, the actual ministry they're doing or to fund their health insurance or to fund any, any number of things that are, are a part of sending missionaries. Uh, and so just over time in my own life and in the life of the people we're ministering to, we just saw, wow, this is a huge deal. Uh, this is a, a dev it's having a devastating effect uh, on both the people and the people, the people in these places and the people trying to minister to them. So I think, I think listening to that, I hope people can hear some familiar themes based on where America is at right now. Yep. But then I, I hope that you can also hear, you know, for those who are unconvinced of Bitcoin so far, where the moral case comes from. The idea being, and, and who was I talking to? Um, one of my previous podcast guests, I might, I don't know that it was Jimmy Song. I think it was someone else um, was talking about how Latin America. Uh, oh, I think it was Andrew Howard. Actually, uh, yeah. he was yeah. he was talking about how Latin America is such a is such a ripe ground for for Bitcoin in particular because they've watched their currencies hyperinflate so many times. Yeah. But you you see the way that people's genuine godly desires to build prosperity for their family, to innovate, to create entrepreneurship, all these different things are undermined consistently by malfeasance with the money supply, which comes from what? Yeah. So again, it comes from a, a view of money that is that basically treats money like it can be created out of thin air with no, really basically no work necessary to produce it. Uh, mm -hmm. And so this and, and that's just a view of of the world and the way that it works that's completely out of step with the way that God designed the world to work. And so so this is what I would say. So we what we just talked about was like these are these are existential problems. Okay. Here's the problems that people on the ground are experiencing. That's nothing to say about Bitcoin, its role in it. And everybody sees these issues. Everybody, these these things that we just outlined are a problem for everyone. Um mm -hmm. now when you start, you know, getting into Okay, well, what are some of the causes of this? You know, you start getting into talking about things like fiat currency. Um, now, what is what is fiat currency? The word fiat just means it's basically it's it's basically the idea of like let it be, like just creating it. It's like it's basically saying this thing exists because it's like it by dictate. You know, I, I'm I say this and so it is. Uh, and so throughout time, this has been something that's been tried numerous times. So it's it's basically fiat currency is, is currency that um, the, the, the actual money itself does not have value. It's it's actually the value is tied to something else. Uh, so rather than, for instance, you know, in in uh, England and Britain and different places, uh, sorry, England and the United States and all these other places for a long time, they used things like silver and gold uh, as money. There was reasons for that. There were reasons for that. The primary reason, one of the biggest reasons is because you want to have, ideally, you want to have the things that we, the things that are the things that we're eating and, and using every day, there is a production cost associated with those things. So as it relates to the cost, like why, what, where does the cost of food come from? Mm -hmm. It has to do with the cost needed to produce it, 
and the labor, you know, and that's involved and all these different things. So there's, there are, there are production costs to food and there's production costs to computers and podcast equipment and cars and, uh, computer, just anything you can think of. There's, there's production, uh, costs there. And so in, in the real world, money is no different. Uh, money throughout history has, is, is another, thing that needs to be produced. It's another thing that has a production cost. So when, again, when we go to a time and place where gold was used as money, think about there's the production cost involved. Number one, you have to pay someone to go out and find the gold Mm -hmm. or someone or has to stumble upon it or something like that. So they have to find the gold. They then have to get it out of the ground. Mm -hmm. And the way that that happens is by either paying people to do it or buying tools or some combination of the both of, of the two to get it up out of the ground to refine it, which takes time and a whole you know bunch of energy and effort to, to refine it, then to turn it into a certain type of coin or a certain size uh, and then stamp it with a certain uh, certain the generally the image of a certain sovereign or ruler or something. Uh, and so all of that process has a cost associated with it. And so what that cost serves to be is it, it serves to be uh, basically a, a barrier or a um, it serves to be something that it's a limiting factor to the amount of, of money that can be created. So in the case of gold, you're limited by uh, the amount of money that you have to pay to do the process of, of creating the, the money. You're also limited by the amount of gold that you have access to. Uh, so what this does is the scarcity of the thing that's used as money helps to be part of the value proposition. All right. Because again, okay. if I have a, if I have a scarce amount of food, uh, I don't want to just give it away. Like why don't the question is why don't we use something like sand as money? Because if we use sand as money, you know, we have the person who's producing the scarce quantity of let's say food, they're producing a scarce amount of food. And then if you can just go out to the beach and scoop up or to the ground and scoop up, you know, hundred million grains of sand and then just go, Hey man, here, I've got this sand to give you. You're, you're trading a non-scarce thing for something that is scarce. And it doesn't make sense for the person exchanging the scarce thing to exchange it for something that can just be easily retrieved, uh, for far less effort and far less cost than it costs them to produce, uh, right. the, the scarce good. So does that make sense? Like that, that's kind of yeah. what we're that. So that dynamic that we all recognize in every other part of the world actually does apply to money as well. But most of us are so accustomed to the world that we live in where money is paper. Um, and really the value is added by the fact that the the entity issuing the paper has lots of guns and nuclear weapons and, <laughs> and power right. and all these kind of things. We're, we're used to that being the source of, of value. And in reality, while that is part of it and it has always been part of it, it's not part of what has served as money. It, it's not the only thing and it's not the biggest aspect of it either. So, uh, so what, what used to be true about money, just to, just to, um, to take this next step and put these, and put these pieces together yeah. is, is that money used to have a cost to produce it. If gold is your money, it costs money to produce the gold, to mine it right. out. Right. Okay. Right. Now with fiat currency, it costs nothing to produce the currency. That's the so-called money printer that they turn yes. the money printer on and we just printed, I don't know how much money are they printing to send, they stopped sending money to Ukraine. I forgot how much money, but how much did they print to send to Ukraine? How much did they print, you know, during COVID money could just literally come out of nowhere. Whereas every other 
kind of money prior to fiat currency, this money out of nowhere, used to have a cost to produce. So it was naturally scarce, right? And the scarcity used to be baked into money. Okay, so now we have, we, we, we've transitioned in, in 1971 to a non-scarce form of money called fiat currency, which can be produced out of nothing, right? Yeah. So yeah. plug that now into the situation that you saw in, uh, in Uruguay vis-a-vis vis what happened in Venezuela, right? Yes. How do these things connect? Perfect. So um, it's a great question. Uh, so basically, in order to do that, we have to take another couple steps back. So in the, the big place where, the, where this change, the seeds of this change were sown uh, near the end of World War II. So again, let's go. Yes, exactly. So as as you're leading into this, so up to World War II, you have gold and silver are serving as 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 money. Uh, this is again, so you had scarce money, it was good. Now, throughout World War II, you had uh, the countries of Europe are, are just fighting for survival. They're trying to survive, you know, Nazi, the Nazi invasion and all these kind of things. And and they're spending I mean, every resource they can, basically, a ton of their resources in order to buy bullets and, you know, guns and, and food in order to just survive. And mm -hmm. so as World War II was drawing to a close, there was a meeting of and, it, and by the time they basically it looked like the the allies were going to win. And basically all these nations started to figure out, try, started to realize, OK, well, most of the countries in Europe have spent the vast majority of their gold to uh, and, and paid the vast majority of their gold and their other scarce monies that they're using. They've paid it to countries like the United States uh, who had the benefit of their geographical isolation. Like mm. they, they paid and bought weapons and food and all kinds of stuff from the United States. So now we're looking at how do we, what is the post-World War II, the post-war um, money situation going to look like? What are we going to use as money? And so... In this in this situation, the United States obviously has a tremendous amount of leverage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they're holding all of this gold, or you know, a huge percentage of of Europe's gold now, uh, and so they're not just gonna just be like, "Hey guys, here, let's just give it back to you." Now that the war's over, no, they, <laughs> the, you know, they, these were real uh, economic transactions that took place. And so the question was for everybody was, "What are we going to do now?" And so they kicked around a few different ideas. Uh, one of them. Uh, yeah, there's a few different ideas that got kicked around. The one that ended up getting chosen was the one that was suggested by the United States, because again, they have they're holding the lion's share of the of the quote unquote real money, yeah. and um, and so they're basically their their uh, idea was to do the following. So what they said is, okay, here's what we're gonna do. We have the vast majority of the gold. What we're gonna do is we're gonna peg the U.S. dollar to a certain amount of gold. So we're going to, for instance, I, I can't remember the numbers offhand. I want to say it was like one, one ounce of gold would be like $20, something along these lines. Mm -hmm. And so then what they said is, here's what we'll do. We'll keep the gold here in the United States, and then we'll give these nations around the world, we'll give them U.S. dollars, uh, U.S. dollar reserves. So you guys are going to, we're going to hold, we're going to hold uh, the gold. You guys are going to hold U.S. dollars. And then, at some point, if you know you guys want to exchange dollars for gold, uh, then you know we can we can do that. We can do like a, an exchange. So there was a, it was a full reserve uh, or not for a partial reserve system, where uh, again it would allow it would allow these countries to start over. It would also allow them to have the benefit. One of the downsides of gold and and why gold has stopped being used broadly um, is and one of the it's one of the inconveniences of it is that it's heavy. 
Mm. Uh, it's not convenient. Uh, there's a number of reasons, but one of them is that it's heavy. Nobody wants to lug around you know, a bunch of gold. It's risky. Someone could rob you. You could lose it. Uh, it it's just, it's got some things that make it less than ideal. Um, another thing is that, so in, in that case, something like fiat currency, paper currency is, is much more desirable because it, it's lighter. Um, again, there's a number of other, uh, other reasons as well, but they, they basically, the United States said, Hey, let's do this. Let's, let's operate. You know, you guys can hold dollars. Uh, will we, we will not go printer crazy. We will maintain a ratio of gold to dollars of one to 20, or, you know, I believe that's it, but it's whatever it is they, we had a fixed ratio. And so the idea was to try to give these countries the benefit of having gold, despite the fact that they, they of a scarce currency, despite the fact that they didn't have access to a scarce currency. So again, all things being equal, this, this seems like a good plan, good enough for, for everyone to agree to. Um, so it's like these America has all the gold and is giving these other countries a debt note in exchange for yes. gold. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's basically them. The United States is leveraging their their power. You know, they have the benefit of having all this gold, and so they just basically said, "Hey, this is what we would like to do." And again, there wasn't another option that seemed, you know, that that really was going to work for everybody, and that was going to answer the nine hundred pound United States gorilla in the room. You can <laughs> and just so give them the gold said, back. Yeah, exactly. But like, they're not going to do that. No one's just going to give away gold that was given in exchange for literally like, what is the value of saving your life? Like that, right. that's what really the United States was saying is like, how worth is it to you for us to save your life? And, and so then you know, they, they ended up doing it. Mm-hmm. So from 1944 to 1971, you had this system where uh, the United States held the gold, these other countries held dollar reserves, and then they just created their own currencies that were backed by, by US dollars. So again, that all things being equal, that that was a good system. The problem that was revealed in 1971 was, I, again, I can't remember, I believe it's France. It's either France or Germany. One of them went to the United States and they said, you know what? It's been a while since we exchanged dollars for gold. The, the, the dollars are very convenient. So we want to exchange, It's we, we just want to exchange some of our dollars for gold. The next day, President Nixon came out and said that the United States was stopping the convertibility of gold. For U.S. dollars, the next day, the next day, yeah, because again, it, <laughs> and basically, what this revealed was that the United States had been abusing its exorbitant privilege, is what it was called. They'd actually been printing far more dollars than they than they had promised to, uh, and so they basically had had betrayed their trust that all these other nations had put in them, and they had done that. Uh, for a number of different reasons. Number one, the Cold War. Like they're again, this doesn't justify it, but in their mind, like it, it allowed them. Abusing their power allowed them to continue to exercise, uh, you know, uh, power and, and control and, and influence on the, on the global stage uh, in the face of Russia and, and its ascent to try to become the next global superpower. Um, so you had the United States do this. Now, again, think about this. Think I about have this so many like, questions, uh, by the way, but continue. Good. Yeah, and we'll, we can get to them. So, but imagine this, like, yeah. Uh, so you can think about, like, so the United States is uh is like a, a a a tent peg or like a stake that's driven into the ground okay it, it it's the ground then the uh so united states uh sorry the gold is the ground you have a uh like a a line that is the us dollar and then you have these individual national currencies are like a kite okay and so so they're up there flighting they're oh. they're tethered they're tethered to the ground they're tethered to reality they're tethered to a scarce resource and when the United States c- 
cut that cut that line that was connecting these fiat currencies to gold. Basically, what happened is all these other f- currencies, national currencies, became free floating. They're just sitting there floating. There's nothing tethering them to reality, tethering them to a scarce resource. And so then all these currencies are basically only as scarce as their governments are fiscally responsible. <laughs> mm. So, mm. so mm. does that make sense? So they're they're yeah. only going to be as scarce now as the governments are fiscally responsible, as they're as they're uh, willing to not print more of their of their own currency. And so what, if there's anything that we've learned over, over the period of, of time, it's that, you know, human governments, they generally over time move to, they want to do the thing that's the easiest and the thing that's going to, especially in a democracy, they're going to do the thing that's easiest and things that give them power. They're going to promise whatever they can to get more power. And so over time, what we, what we now see in Venezuela and places like Argentina and all these kind of things began to, to happen with much greater, much, much greater effect. It really just happened. It, this situation befell all these countries at the same time. Okay. So I have so many questions about all that <laughs> for so many different reasons. Now, what you're talking about is the Bretton Woods Agreement, right? That's yes, the, correct. That's, okay. Okay. Correct. So this is, this is really interesting. Because I actually tweeted about this recently about the uh, WTF happened in 1971.com site where you can start to see all all this stuff kind of start to go wrong when Nixon, Nixon, no way, uh, removed the convertibility of gold. But where where I want to start actually with a a question, did he do this unilaterally? Was it like France and Germany showed up and like, we want our gold back? And he's like, uh, and just wrote off the executive order and then like threw it out there? Or like, how did that actually go down. And then I'll want to start working backwards from there because it seems to me that this post-war period from like 1945 to like 1970 lives in the contempt in, in the American imagination, certainly until 1960, 1945 to 1960, yes. lives in the American imagination as this idyllic time in yes. all of human history that shall not be questioned. And for a lot of people, the 60s are that too. So we'll just broadly say this 25-year period but the more you actually start peeling back the layers and looking into that, more and more stuff starts coming out that's quite scary to look at. So, But let's start with how the actual Bretton Woods Agreement was revoked, and then we'll work backwards from there to the abuses that came about from the United States having all that power. Yeah. And so basically, oh man, this is it's been like just long enough where I'm like, I'm like trying to remember the details of this. But basically, of course, no, it, it wasn't just Nixon unilaterally. <laughs> like, like they have all these he's all these members of his staff who are basically like, if you don't do this, then there's going to be a crisis. There's like there could potentially sure. be a crisis. And the crisis would take this form of, uh, you know, again, if if it's it's not a big deal if one country does this. Right. But if other countries start doing this and if the United States, if the United States says no, if, if they basically just say no to them without just cutting the cutting the actual system, just saying we're not doing this anymore. Like it, it, it basically throws it basically forces all kinds of other uncomfortable questions to be asked. So by right. just saying we're stopping doing this program like it's over and now like you have to deal with it. <laughs> and so like it, so it, it's really, I mean, it's, it's horribly immoral, but like, yeah. and, and so this is what I'm saying is it, it's, I mean, it's a betrayal, honestly, like America, we as growing up in America, we were like, oh, we're, we're these great moral actors on an otherwise, <laughs> in an otherwise morally bankrupt world. And, <laughs> and this, the reality of what happened just kind of shatters that to pieces, uh, which is again, as Christians, we shouldn't have an issue with like, again, 
doesn't matter what nationality you have, you know, you have a sin problem and, and the governments of the world have these same issues. They, they govern for their own glory and try to seek out, you know, their own, um, see, yeah, seek out their own glory and fame in, in as easy a way po- as possible, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, so as to the actual mechanics, it's, it's been a while since I've like looked in this. So I, I don't know all the, exactly all the details of it. Um, but this is something that, again, this is, this is what motivated it. It said, Hey, we, we understand this is going to have negative consequences for us. And so we're just going to just cut the plug. We're just going to, you know, do the, just cut the cord completely. And then rather than like all these other countries are going to have to spend this time trying to figure out what they do. They're going to have all these things at home that are going on and you know, whatever, like obviously there's going to be repercussions with us, but again, on a number of levels, what are they really going to do to the United States? Like these, well, the United States, I was going to ask point, that question. Yeah. At this point, the United States is this nuclear superpower. Uh, and so they, like they, I mean, they have a tremendous political and, and military might that, I mean, it wasn't like France was going to be like, Oh, this, this, betrayal is such that we're going to go to war against the United States. Like again, that, that just wasn't going to happen. We just stole um, all their gold though. Like that's literally what just happened. Right. Yeah. Well, so they didn't steal their gold because they had paired, they had paid their gold fair and share to the uh, United States to, to, you know, to, for bullets and food and all this kind of stuff. Okay. So it just ended up again, it would be like the same dynamic of like, I'm just trying to imagine like, what's something, well, uh, like what's a resource that one country has that, everybody else. So Uruguay, we could say this, for instance, like, let's say something happened and, uh, to all of the beef supply in the, in the United States, they all just died for some reason. There's some sort of cataclysmic, uh, you know, flu that fell over them and they all died. Well, then what would happen is there'd become this giant premium on beef. And so countries like Uruguay, which at this point are these tiny little, it's a tiny little country. Nobody even knows where it is. Basically they, the one thing that they have a lot of is beef. They have tons of cows. There's like three or four cows for every person in Uruguay. And so all of a sudden the value of those cows would go up tremendously. And so this is a similar dynamic. So you would now all of a sudden, everybody would be, would be clamoring to try to get these, to try to get this resource that is now scarce or whatever. And so again, there's no quick, easy way to get gold. It's, it's not a perfect analogy, but there's no quick, easy way to get gold. The United States has the lion's share of the gold. And so they have the leverage to make the decisions that they did. So they didn't steal, but they did betray. They did betray what they said. And so the U S dollar reserves that all these countries were holding were actually the purchasing power of them was actually far less than what they were, than the face value was supposed to be per the agreement. If that makes sense. Okay. So they, so they did steal in a sense, but not in the sense that I meant like you paid the gold fair and square. We gave you this debt note, right? But then behind the scenes, we're doing shenanigans and yes. then we got called out and then yes. we're like, uh, game's over. Bye. Like deal yes. with it. Uh. Yes. So effectively, effectively France and all these other countries, Germany, the post-World War II people, I guess Germany, like all England, some of these other countries, like they're operating in a world where they're thinking that the, the price of the price of a dollar, the purchasing power of, of a dollar is that it can buy 20 or 20 or 30, uh, or sorry, one ounce of gold can buy 20 or $30 and vice versa. Right. In reality, the exchange was far different than that because mm. the United States throughout that period had been printing more dollars than they had said that they were, they were going to. Right. And so the purchasing power of those dollars was actually far less than, than it was in reality or than the stated value was. Okay. 
I love what I do. What is that, you might add? Well, after mentoring dozens of men over the past couple years, they all tell me one thing. In my mentorship, I help men get unstuck. Men get stuck for all kinds of reasons. Maybe there are events in your past haunting you with regret. Sometimes there are sticky situations in the present that need a fresh perspective. Maybe you're having trouble envisioning your future. Meanwhile, some men have bad habits and false beliefs about themselves, the world, and God, some of which they inherited. And many of you have questions about the faith that you can't seem to find a pastor to answer, at least not in a way that doesn't feel like he's looking over his shoulder to see if there are women listening. I get it. These situations and many more are the kinds of things I help men with. It's what I've always wanted to do, long since before I set out on the road to travel, and I can help you too. This isn't therapy, where I listen benignly and nod without challenging you. I definitely don't have a problem digging in and getting hands-on with what you say. It's not a coaching program either, where I beat you over the head with a baseball bat. If you need that, I recommend you visit the Manosphere Department. It's in the basement. Instead, what you get in the mentorship is the same man you hear on this podcast. Someone willing to listen, get to the bottom of things, point out the flaws, push back when necessary, and get you moving towards the truth of who God made you to be as a man. I am proud of this program and the results my clients have achieved, including significant amounts of weight loss, renewed marriages, unforgettable adventures, businesses started, new lives begun in new towns, expanded incomes, and genuine experiences of love and connection with family and friends, and the feeling of being really appreciated for once. There's more, but you probably wouldn't believe me if I told you. But let's just say I've seen for myself that with faithfulness and dedication, miracles are absolutely possible. Praise God. What could a mentorship with me do for you? The answers are as rich and complex as your life, and that's what I'm there for, to help you discover them. To learn more, visit renofmen.com mentorship and click enroll now for a free 30-minute explore call where we find out together what mentorship can do for you. On that page, you can view 10 video testimonials to get a sense of the kind of men I've helped and what their results have been. You don't have to take my word for it. It is my great privilege and blessing to be part of men's lives in a way that changes them, and I can assure you that it's not all me. A man once said, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. And that man plays a pretty big role in this process too. Again, if you're ready to get unstuck and get your life moving, 2024 is waiting. And so am I. Visit rentofmen.com mentorship to find out more. And let's get you going. I, I, did, a, I did a tweet a couple, or well, maybe it was last week where I pointed out that um, no-fault divorce was 1969. That yep. was the first, right? Uh, 1971 was the end of Bretton Woods, the convertibility of gold. Roe v. Wade was 1972. Yes. Yeah. And, and Heart, the Heart Seller Immigration Act, what was that, 67? Something like that, 68? That I don't know, but yeah. Yeah. So, like, there was a lot of really bad stuff going on in the late 60s, early 70s, that it's just like, Pay no to how do we how do we get here as a nation? I don't know. Let's go look back to that particular you know that particular time when we started legalizing things like the end of marriage without cause and the ability to kill your unborn child, and then also the severing of the money supply from anything scarce or of real value when yeah. America started making and and that was all done behind the scenes too. 
Like I, I didn't understand that that component of it. That America had been uh, go figure that America under essentially under uh, Lyndon Johnson and then Nixon had been doing shenanigans with the money supply to fight the Cold War, right? And that's a whole thing. And Vietnam yes. as well, right? Yep had been doing shenanigans with the money supply and then France and Germany or someone shows up and calls us out on it. And instead of like taking responsibility, we're like, uh, oh, nope, deals off. We're America deal with it. Like yeah. that is such an America, that's such an America thing to do and not in a good way. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And so again, what this, you, again, you keep going back further and, and what the, really the, the, this question of what is money is like, it is the defining in many ways, it is one of the biggest two defining questions that affects everything else in society. And this is why I say that. So one of the things that ha that happened is, and one of the reasons why, I mean, the, the um, a nation's money is in many senses, like in many ways, a, it's, a, it's the lifeblood of a country. So mm -hmm. it's the thing that you use to denominate all of the things without which you die. Mm -hmm. So what, where money is used, so it's what I use to buy food. It's what I use to buy cars. It's what I use to pay for my health care. It's what, and so it, it's this incredibly influential thing. And so when the, when this thing by which you denominate everything else is messed with, you, of course, you're going to have consequences. There's going to be all kinds of other things that are affected. So for instance, we could, I mean, you could talk about once the United States began making money and separated it from a scarce uh, resource like gold, one of the things that allowed them to do was to then fund whatever they want. Mm -hmm. So again, if if you can, again, we, we, God created the world, and we can get into this too, God, God created mm -hmm. the world in such a way as it, he created to accord with and to align with his priorities. He has things that he wants to happen. And so he created the, the world to work that way. Um, and so one of these, one of the principles, if you wanted to summarize, uh, you know, this is front to back of the Bible, you're trying to summarize, you know, what are some of the, the foundational things that God has made to govern the way that the universe works? Uh, you could talk about the principle of sowing and reaping. Mm -hmm. And so this principle, uh, this my the realization of this was I was a pastor in Uruguay. I was doing sermon prep. I was in the book of Galatians. And near the end, the apostle Paul uh, says that God is not mocked for what a man sows that will he also reap. So I, I, I just, so I was like trying to re-put this in my, in my own words. It's like, okay, so God has so hardwired uh, this principle of sowing and reaping into the fabric of the world that to deny it is tantamount to mocking God. And so I, I just started to think, okay, like, what are some examples of this? Well, the apostle Paul says that if you don't work to the, to the Thessalonians, if you don't work, then neither shall you eat. So Paul says there ought to be a sowing and reaping relationship between working and eating. And so he says, if, if you're willing to work, then you're, then you'll eat. If you're not willing to work, you will not eat. And if you do that for long enough, what's the result? You die. <laughs> if you don't eat, then you die. If you're not willing to work, Paul says, you you should die. And so there's this fixed sowing and reaping relationship. You keep going on to this. Um, you know, you look at things like, I mean, there's you could go through a, a ton of things, but one of the things is it's the one of the things that separates uh, uh, the the religion of Islam from Christianity. Mm -hmm. uh, in within Islam, Allah can just forgive sins. Mm -hmm. he, he can just basically say like, you know, unilaterally, I forgive sins this. And so this is why Muslims don't understand why Jesus had to die. They're like, what, mm -hmm. what that's not necessary in their, in their framework to Christians. It is. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because like there is a real debt that requires real payment. 
Yeah, and so real justice. Yes, this is what real justice looks like. You can't just, pro, you know, papally announce that, you know, justice is whatever you want it to be. Uh, mm-hmm. There actually has to be a penalty for this. And so, so the more that I was, you know, thinking about this, I was thinking about, uh, you know, just thinking about this, this fact, like God created the world to operate according to sowing and reaping. And, and to deny that is to mock God, not a good thing. Um, and so then I started thinking about in the book of uh, Romans, Romans 1, uh, the Apostle Paul is describing what the nature of sin is. And he says, uh, and uh, I can't remember the exact verse, Romans one twenty one, maybe, they refuse to acknowledge God as God or be mm-hmm. grateful. And so what what is being described there? They refuse to acknowledge that God is the source of their life. He's the source of everything that they have. And they refuse to be grateful for it. So they refuse to acknowledge that there's a relationship between sowing and reaping between their life itself. And so like, this is the nature of sin. It's, it's, it's saying that I can act in such a way and there not be consequences. Mm -hmm. I can, I can avoid the consequences through my own ingenuity, through doing whatever I want to. Uh, And so the, the first place you see this in the scriptures is from the mouth of the serpent. Mm. Uh, you know, he asked them, he begins to ask Adam and Eve different questions. And he said, did God say that you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden? And, and Eve goes, no, he said that we, you know, we can't eat from this, the, from this, this certain tree. And if we do, or even touch it, we'll die. Mm-hmm. And yep. that, you know, it, and right in that moment, the serpent says, you will not die. And so in that moment where like Adam and Eve with humanity was faced with the decision, is God's word correct? God says, if we eat of the fruit of this tree, we will die. Or is the serpent correct that if we eat the fruit of the tree, we will not die. Someone is describing reality correctly. The other person is not. It's a binary choice. And so who, who is going to be right? God is saying that there's a, there's a, a, a sowing and reaping relationship between eating the fruit and sowing the consequences. The serpent says, no, you can, you can disobey the, the word of God and avoid the consequences. So Satan denies the relationship between sowing and reaping, and we see the consequences. God obviously was telling the truth. And so ever since then, there's been like the sin has entered into the world. And if, if people are not willing to acknowledge this relationship between revelation and, and you know, uh, objective truth and reality, they, they bear all kinds of consequences on all kinds of levels. You could do this uh, in terms of uh, immorality within relationships. So, uh, you know, relationships break down where that, where that trust is lost, then things start to break down and there's all kinds of horribly destructive, uh, consequences of it. Sir, I must say that I'm shocked, shocked that you are suggesting that America at the end of the 1960s would have made decisions to that were Irrespective, that they made these decisions irrespective of the consequences that they did not think <laughs> through the consequences of their actions. I'm shocked that you would suggest that America would behave in such a way at the end of the 1960s. How dare you? Radical idea, I know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like, like, well, that's that's actually um, the the thrust of the entire decade, wasn't it? Like, yeah. hey, let's, yeah. you, you know, you don't you don't like the fact that you you married someone who isn't making you quote unquote fulfilled. Well, just. Yeah. And the divorce, no fault, yes. just tidy. Oh, you don't you don't like the fact that uh, you had sex and and now a child has resulted from that. Oh, just you know, kill the child. Oh, you know, we 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 did this deal with um with this arrangement with these countries that we had uh, saved, you know, from from the Nazi threat during yeah. World War Two, and uh, then we went and we had had all this malfeasance behind the scenes. Oh, well, we'll just end the deal. 
no problem. What could what could possibly go wrong, right? Exactly. And then what happened in 1970 what happened in 1971 shows what goes wrong. And yeah. and the thing is just just to just to Do it. reinforce yeah. your point is that um it's not like these things couldn't have been foreseen is with the dynamic of sowing and reaping. Yeah. If you do a thing, this thing results from it. If you start, if you act immorally, prepare for consequences of your sin, material, real world consequences, in, independent of the eternal penalty. Consequences and penalty are not the same thing, right? But uh, they're, they're very linked, you know, in yes. some important ways. And in the same way, when, when you uh, detach the money supply that people are spending from anything with real world value, and you throw away the thing with the real world value. So you have this money supply that's just floating on air. And the only thing keeping it tethered to the ground is the responsibility of politicians and bureaucrats. Yeah. It's a heck of a gamble. Yeah. Especially again, especially in a democracy. Uh, even even that, like again, monarchies mm-hmm. could obviously go wrong. I'm not trying to like paint them out to be these some great things. But when when everything is depending on one person. That could either go horribly wrong or it could actually go pretty well. Right. But when when you have a democracy where every four years you have a new <laughs> you have a new crop of uh, of psychopaths saying whatever whatever they need to in order to try to get power, like th- it's it's going to go bad in in a hurry, or it can go very bad in, in a hurry. Or or and not only that, when you have a government that since the 1960s had taken upon itself the responsibility to solve social problems with yes. the arm of the federal government that somehow yes. these things that used to be the responsibility of state governments, local governments, families, and the church suddenly now becomes the responsibility of the federal government to handle with additional bureaucracy and federal agencies. Yes. Like, heck yeah, that's where that starts to go wrong real quick. It's like, well, you know, we have to solve the social problem that the federal government really wasn't made to do, but you know, yes. we just feel this intense guilt and shame. Yes. And so we have to fix it. We'll just turn on the money printer just a little bit to fix it. Cause obviously, obviously this is what the government is supposed to do. Right. And, and so what you, exactly, and what you're describing is you're seeing a, redef, a redefining of what, of what it is to be a government. You're seeing mm-hmm. a, as you're redefining money, you're redefining government. You're redefining again, the, the role of government in, in education. You're redefining the role of government in all these ways. And so what, what always happens is it, it yeah, what, what always happens, you have the social security act. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden mm-hmm. now with the social security act, you have now it's the government's role to provide for people's retirement. It's, it's, it's the government's role to, to provide for people monetarily. Now, what had been happening up to this point? Had, had everyone just been dying in the streets and it had been this horrible thing? No, you had, and, and even before this, you have like all throughout this period up through today, you have private charities, you have mm-hmm. private hospitals, you have, you know, all these things that are, that are providing for people's needs. But now, you, you know, around this time when the government starts to take control of the money supply, again, now they have the power to decide where to allocate that money. And so they can subsidize. They now have given themselves the ability to subsidize any ideas and messages that they want. And so it's no it's no accident that all of like the I mean trans and LGBT and all these kind of things that they start like that they've the reason they've been able to to get to the place and the level of prominence that they have despite being a minuscule percentage of the population is because they've been subsidized for generations by 
money that's created and, and subsidies given by the by the federal government and mm-hmm. by other federal governments around the world as well. It's not an accident. It's not just like a coincidence. It's it's there's a one to one relationship between that. You know, they create the money without any work and then can send it out as their servants, their messengers to go do their will effectively in the world. Um, and so again, like money, money is this thing that allows uh, governments to say, let my kingdom come and let my will be done. It's mm. this satanic inversion <laughs> in very real ways. It's a, it's an inversion of, of the Lord's prayer, the prayer that we're, you know, that God calls humanity to live our lives according to, mm. which is, you know, may, may your kingdom come. And so, and so this is one of the, my, my big arguments is that th- this question of, of fiat currency versus scarce money or f- fiat money versus scarce money, like this is a huge issue because it represents a choice between living in the world that God made and living in a world that is made according to the image and likeness of politicians in, in men. Um, you know, are, are we going to submit ourselves to the world that God made, which is scarce and has this all you know, predominant law, all governing, all expansive law of sowing and reaping? Or are we going to, with the serpent from Genesis 3, are we going to live just like that where we can define reality according to our own desires um, and our own convenience? Uh, this, this is really what's at stake uh, in this question. And, and it, it's, yeah, it's really not a hard, it's not a difficult question to answer, but it's, it's made purposely complex so that it's harder for like, the question is like, what would you do about this as Christians? You know, what, what do, how do you, you know, if we recognize like this is a horribly unjust system that among other things has enabled endless war for generations. Uh, it's enabled the systematic carving out of the education system. Uh, you know, like all these things, what, what do you really do about it at this point? Uh, and, and that's a fair, it's a fair question, but at some point you just have to stop digging the hole (laughs) that you're, that Mm -hmm. you're seeing being dug in front of you. Um, and so, yeah, so it's not just as simple as, I mean, in this, we could get into Bitcoin at this point, but like, it's not just as simple as, even though I think Bitcoin is, is a tool is one tool in this, it's one other alternative to this incredibly corrupt, you know, oppressive system that has, it's doomed to fail, always has and you know, all these, it, it's, it's not just as simple as, Oh, cool. We just, we just moved to a new money and then that fixes everything. We have to go like, we have to l- redefine and have these conversations about just these foundational level questions of what is money? What is government? What is it for? What are people and what are people for? Like these, these base baseline philosophical religious questions that we have just kind of shoved into a corner or that have been shoved into a corner, um, you know, as an, you know, nationally for, for generations, we have to like those questions you can't escape from. They're going to affect you regardless of whether you ignore them or not. And you, you live out answers to those questions, whether you realize it or not. And, and we're coming to a point where everything is starting to crumble because we've neglected these, these first things for so long. Well, yes. And, and I would say, like, do we have the choice to live in the world that God made or the world the government made? We actually don't have that choice. Yes. We only get to live in the world that God made. Yes. And sowing and reaping are, are, are dynamics. And I really hope that, you know, there, there are a few people listening who have been unconvinced about Bitcoin, a few Christians listening that have been unconvinced about Bitcoin, that can feel their consciences tingling a little bit. The notion that, that something, something was sown. A lot of things have been sown. I think we just put a lot of pieces together. There was a book that came to mind, um, and I had to look it up. It's called The Age of Entitlement, America Since the 60s by Christopher Caldwell. Yeah. Uh, this book has come very highly recommended by, by many people that I trust. And that sort of 
indicates that while, as, as you said, you know, the, the canceling of the Bretton Woods agreement in 71, that came after all the spending malfeasance. That was like, that was done once America got called out because the American government's attitude or the, or the people's attitude towards the use of government was about solving social problems, developing all of these entitlements, which was not something that the federal government was designed for. But in order to make that possible to solve all these social problems, there was this giant wave of guilt and shame that was washed over the boomers and the post-war generation who bought it and said, well, we clearly have to take responsibility for ourselves onto ourselves to make this right because God doesn't exist. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. And let's fund the government to fix all of our problems. Yeah. Right. And like, yeah. voila, we're here. Right. And so, yes. and so, and so I think that's the root of the moral case that gets made. Forget it. Forget it. We'll, we'll get into Bitcoin in just a second. Cause I do yeah. want to land yeah. these two, but to look at the nature of the problem first and acknowledge independently that severing the money supply from anything you know tangible and scarce, like gold, for example, is what we have been using and making it accessible, making money accessible to politicians and bureaucrats who need to switch it on and then changing the entire ethic of government to solve problems that was never meant to do yes. ad infinitum, yes. ha- it is, a- a- which then the behaviors that that then subsidizes. And there, there's something, um, someone asked me a really provocative question years ago and, uh, and I, and I haven't found a good answer for it. I think this might be the answer. I want to run it by you. Why is it that a Big Mac this post-industrial product, a Big Mac made of beef patties and, you know, allegedly it's a vegetable like lettuce and this sauce <laughs> and like these buns and then the label and, and the, sorry, and then the labor and all the stuff in the market, like this Big Mac is a dollar. It's made up of a bunch of different products that come from literally all over the world and assembled for a dollar. A Big Mac is a dollar, but an apple is $2. Why is that? And uh, the best answer I can come up with and the answer that someone gave me at the time was because of government subsidies. Yes. That's the only thing that makes that possible. So so you're subsidizing social programs and you're subsidizing corporations that are feeding us literal poison while, you know, single ingredient, real foods is unaffordable. It's, it's, it's insanity. And, and, and this is why. And then exactly a hundred percent there again, that, that the website you mentioned WTF happened in 1971.com. Uh, like there, they have, they do work on that as well. Uh, mm. But yeah, the, the, the effect of, and you know, once, once the money, the position of the money creation changes, you know, once that the source of the monetary creation changes, so change the incentives that go with it. Mm-hmm. And so when the United States is the one creating the money, the, when the government becomes the one or you know, the federal reserve becomes the one creating the money, then all of a sudden, everyone is looking to them for favors. They, you know, they can. There's this group now that we can go to to look for favors. Because really, again, previously, when you have scarce money, in order to get more of it, you have to go find it and do all this work. There's all this capital investiture. And so it, it's a lot more work involved than if it's if it's if now in the in, when fiat currency is operating, all you have to do is go become friends with the guy who has the power to create more money. Yeah. And then, you know, if you get become friends with him, you can convince him and whether it's through promising kickbacks to him or whatever it would be, you know, whatever it happens to be again. Yeah. It's so you, you create a different world than if you had, you had scarce money. So again, yeah, all of these dynamics, it's not, yeah, I, I, there's this fantastic quote. I, the most, the person I heard it from was Doug Wilson, but I'm sure it was somebody else is like, um, Politics is downstream from culture, 
mm-hmm. but culture is downstream from theology. And so like ultimately at the end of the day, like what we're talking about, this, the, the redefinition of government, redefine, redefinition of, of people, of work, of all these things, those are theological moves that are happening. And so like, you can't redefine those things. Like it, it, you're, you're making, you're taking the place of God when you start making, you know, redefining those things, you're playing God. And so really what we have is on a governmental and monetary level, you have, there's been a lot of playing God that's been going on. And the problem is that people are really bad gods. (laughs) As it turns out, I am a terrible God. (laughs) We don't have, we don't have the, the, the omniscience and the omnipresence, the omnipotent. We don't have the necessary resources to wield that type of power. And so that's why God in his mercy and his love did not give it to us. <laughs> he he wants us to, to allow him to be God. And then we find freedom in life in submitting ourselves and letting, you know, letting him handle those things. And then we, God wants us to be stewards, not gods. Mm-hmm. He, he wants us to steward the things that he's given to us and the processes that he's designed to govern the universe. And when we do those things, we find joy. Mm-hmm. And we find freedom and happiness by by submitting ourselves humbly before before him. Amen. And I would love I would love to go running down that rabbit trail, but what I want to do is <laughs> I want to I want to re- rewind the clock and now we're going to put you back in Uruguay as you're seeing all of these things for the first time. You're seeing financial malfeasance in Venezuela flooding into Uruguay and you're like what is going what is going on here? Right. So, so let's start putting the case together for how some of these moral realizations that you made as a church planter in Latin America helped lead you towards Bitcoin as the conclusion. And now to where you are today with the Thank God for Bitcoin conference and book, et cetera. Yep, exactly. So yeah, what really what happened was I was, I was sitting there and I'm thinking about this as it relates to the people who were, who were ministering to. And obviously what is your responsibility? This is the question is what do I do about this? What do I do about what I'm seeing in terms of, you know, the effects of, of fiat currency and all these things? Like, is, is there really anything that can be done? So on an immediate level, we're, we're just helping these people start their lives over. So we're helping them buy furniture and we're helping them, you know, we're doing like marriage counseling. We're doing different kinds of things. That That's one level of, of very practical help that, that needs to happen. Um, there's people living within these, uh, living within worlds that are, living in places where their worlds are being destroyed because of fiat currency. And part of the, the solution is, all right, you have to meet them right where they're at. So that's what we, that's largely what we were doing while we were in Uruguay. That was the, one of the things that we were doing. But second, I was just trying to figure out, okay, is, is, is that it? Like, is that the only thing that we can do? Um, and so that's where I kind of found Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. And so I started, I got into Bitcoin in 2017. Um, I had, you know, bought like a hundred dollars worth of it. Uh, I just had saw in the news that it had increased from a thousand dollars at the beginning of the year to, you know, 10,000 uh, near, I guess in, in December. And so again, I just was just like, well, that's weird. Uh, I should get some. Okay. So I, I bought a hundred dollars worth and then it promptly went from, you know, 10,000 when I bought it up to 20,000 mm-hmm. within a week or something. And, and so then I was just like, what is going, <laughs> trying to figure out like, what is happening right now? I, I, I didn't know, I have any framework for understanding what it was. Um, and so again, got into it, that happened. And then right after that, we had like a giant uh, crisis happen with our, our team, our missionary team in Uruguay. And so the, the team leader uh, and his family had to leave 
within like a month. And so basically overnight, I went from being the very content number two, uh, you know, doing discipleship and leading music and, you know, these kind of things to being the, the head pastor overnight. And so basically anything that wasn't pastoring just completely like went out the window. <laughs> and mm. so completely forgot about Bitcoin, didn't even exist. And so just went, went to work just pastoring and trying to, you know, take up, take up that, that mantle. Uh, so about a year and a half goes by and Bitcoin was back in the news and we, you know, we were more stable. The church was more stable. And so I just said to myself, I was like, okay, this thing is back. It had gone down to 3000 and then was back up at like 9,000. And so I just said to myself, okay, I have to understand this. I, I was a philosophy major. I always just kind of want to be able to at least have a base understanding of how things work. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go figure out how this, how this thing works. And so over the course of, of like the next year, that was just kind of my little nerd out, <laughs> my little nerd out, try to, you know, personal thing was just like, all right, how do I, what is this? Where does it come from? And, and what is it doing? Why is it so volatile? All these kind of things. And so the crazy thing in a nutshell that I, that I found out was that the creation of Bitcoin, which happened in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, um, Bitcoin was created to because of the fact that during the crisis, governments were able to create money out of thin air to uh, basically, um, you know, uh, pay off their crony buddies. Basically, you help bail them out, literally. You give them bailouts from losing billions of dollars, which as a, as a consequence would have affected the American economy and all kinds of other things. Um, too big to basically fail. The fact, yes, the, exactly. Too big to fail. So there were plenty of people uh, <laughs> who, who were plenty of people and families that had homes who were not too big for fail, uh, not too big to fail. Mm -hmm. um, they lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They lost all these things. But these big banks that had been the cause of this issue in the first place, were bailed out with, you know, money that the United States would then end up, you know, basically through debt that was then passed along to, to the American people. So Bitcoin was created because of fiat currency, because we had a system where governments could create money out of thin air to devalue the purchasing power of everybody else in, in the name of saving the economy or saving certain, certain actors within the economy. And so when, when I realized that, I just basically saw, wait a second, Bitcoin was created to, to try to make what is happening in Venezuela not possible. Like try to remove monetary creation from the hands of, of any one person or government. Um, and so that if that is possible, that's a tremendously uh, it's, a, it's a tremendously valuable proposition, especially for the poorest people on Earth. Um, and so now again, there's, there's caveats to that. Bitcoin is a digital currency, which, you know, not everyone on earth has access to, but for the people who do have access to money, especially the more, you know, the four or five, I guess, 4 billion people who have access to, to the internet, that kind of a, that kind of a development is a huge thing. It's a, it's a massive development for them, uh, to give them a way, a, a, a way to opt out of, uh, you know, the helpless, participation that they have in, in they have otherwise. So in the fiat, you know, fiat system, it provides an alternative to the existing system that allows large scale wealth redistribution from, from uh, the people, everyday people to the government. Got it. Got it. Yes. And, and um, I think the big, the big benefit of it, um, which, which we've, I've talked about in another podcast, I, I, we haven't, we haven't really touched on it here, but relative to the, the conversation we've been having is that, um, Bitcoin is anti-inflationary, meaning like, like, like gold, um, gold is, you have to put in work and thank you for helping me crystallize, you know, proof of work was something that I, that I was, 
you know, uh, getting my getting my arms around completely, and you've 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 cinched it for me. But gold was something that you had to work to produce. The money printer yes. requires no work to produce, um, but Bitcoin does require work to produce, not yes. physical manual labor, but yes. the work of an actual. But the but we'll say the work of a computer, energy, yeah. right, being fed and yes. being fed into the process. And so you can't just and and this is why it's. Um, it is more sound money. It is more moral money than the money printer because you can't just you can't just create it out of nothing. So what's being what's being proposed essentially the moral case between Bitcoin and fiat currency is fiat currency can be printed out of nothing and applied towards things that um, that those who print it can just unilaterally decide. We printed it. We have unilateral control over printing it. The supply is infinite. We're going to throw it at all these different problems that we think are problems, and you don't really get any say over it, right? Yeah. Versus Bitcoin, which works in the exact opposite way. No, this is hard bound to uh, to natural limits. It cannot simply be created out of nothing. It must be worked for. It is therefore scarce, and then we have to be more judis- judicious about what we apply it to. Yeah. Yes. That's well, very well said and very well put. Um, I, I think, again, as Christians, especially, I'm guessing there's a lot of re- reformed Christians who listen to your podcast. I'm sure that's not limited to that, but mm. a lot of them are, are reformed. And so within within reform circles, you have like the idea of federal headship. Like you have, mm-hmm. like Jesus is our federal head. Yep. And so you have someone who their action, they have a representative action on behalf of a group of people. The horrifying reality that I came, <laughs> that I came to was that the ways in which the United States dollar is being used. Like, so again, the United States can print money and subsidize whatever they want to. What are some examples of that? We mentioned endless war earlier. Mm. The United States is able to wage and basically subsidize any war that they want to because of the dollar. They can, you know, because they have effectively unlimited amount of dollars, they can just go and do whatever they want to in terms of fighting wars. The other thing is they can force United States social policy on other other countries around the world, or they can do their best to. And so the, the formula that takes, so again, why should Christians care about this? Because in your name, the United States government, because of fiat currency, is able to create $300 million out of thin air and send it to Africa to fund African abortions. Like these are the type of things that are being done in your name. They're being done with, like with uh, quote unquote money that then also has the function of devaluing your purchasing power of the work that you're doing. And then it's also being used to wreak havoc and death on innocent people all over the world. And so like there's there's a huge cost beyond the 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 monetary or beyond the uh, the the what's the word? Uh, yeah, just beyond the monetary cost, there's a huge human cost to what's going on. Uh, and there's a huge human cost to, you know, around the world, you know, people who are made in God's image who are having their lives torn apart because of the hubris of, of government officials and their insistence on maintaining the ability to create money and, and refusing to submit themselves to a limiting factor or a money that serves as a limiting faction on their, on their hubris and their desire to do whatever they want. Um, and so this is, this is a huge, a huge issue uh, that Christians should care a lot about. And this is, um, I, I think about, you know, uh, it's Psalm two again, what is, 
Psalm 2, basically, it talks about the nations of the earth. Uh, I'm going to read it here. It says, mm. why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. And so the nations of the earth, all these wicked kings who don't want to bow their knee to King Jesus are saying, let's get rid of any restraint that God is putting on us. Like we, we want to be our own gods. We want to be, we want to operate completely autonomously in the world. And what I'm suggesting to every Christian out there is that fiat currency represents one of the most influential ways in if, like consequential ways that governments do this exact thing. Mm-hmm. They basically throw off scarcity in order to be able to do whatever they want to do in the world. And so Christians, regardless of whether you like Bitcoin or not, like like regardless of whether you care about Bitcoin or you think Bitcoin, you know, you understand it or think it's valuable, or whatever, this is still an issue that you have to reconcile with yep. in any event. <laughs> and so the question is, and there again, how are you going to do that? There's lots of people who, uh, including lots of Christians who who look at things like gold and silver. They say, hey, this is real money, and this is, you know, I'm still going to continue to to invest in this because again, this can't last forever. And I agree with all those things. I think again, I'm advocate of, of gold and silver. Um, I think that, you know, they still, they still have a place. They still have a value. Um, but you can't, the one thing you can't do is just continue to operate and just, Oh, this isn't a big deal. You know, just this, the money that we have being backed by nothing, you can't as a Christian just say, I don't care about that. Like you don't, you don't have, there's, there's moral consequences, uh, to, to that kind of thing, um, that have had consequences for a very long time and that are having increasingly, um, pervasive, increasingly perverse consequences as, as time goes on. A lot of people are asking right now, how do we get here? You know, how, like what's going on? And, and a lot of people are waking up to, um, to a lot of different things. One of them is that like, uh, you know, Christless conservatism has conserved nothing, right? That's a big, that's a big disillusioning factor. Like we're all aware that Democrats are all, are all fallen and sinners and have rejected God. And, and, you know, one of the, one of the hard realizations is, is that, yeah, conservatives who who don't profess Christ and mean it, they haven't done a great job either because they, they don't have any tools to do it. I think the calendar gate <laughs> revealed yep. revealed a lot of that. Um, and and uh, Christians are becoming very convicted about that. But what you begin to see when um, you look closely at this is like, well, a big way that we got here is that we were able to pay for it. Like all of these social programs, all of these wars, all of these things that have characterized 2020 COVID, for example, in 2020, yep. right? 100%. All of these things that characterize our world, they had to be paid for. Where did the money come from? It came from the money printer. And that is just whatever you think the solution is, that's a different question. Like you have to look at this, this world that we live in was bought and paid for out of nothing, out of absolute fiat currency. Let there be money, yep. <laughs> right? And 100%. Right. Instead of let there be light, let there be darkness via money. Exactly. Yes. Right. Yeah. Let there let there be might is really what it, like uh, they're saying. Like let us let us exercise our power, and we're going to control and govern in fashion again the world that looks the way that we want it to. Yep. Okay. So I I don't know that we can make the moral case any clearer. Right for for the flaws for the flaws of fiat currency. Now, if someone wants to go in and and actually look at how money is created, right, literally like the actual mechanics of it, the wicked mechanics of it. Because what we're, we're what we've been saying is that 
fiat currency, um, you know, let there be might, which is awesome. Um, fiat currency enables all of these profound worldwide social ills, right? And fiat currency itself came out of like an injustice with malfeasance after World War II and then getting called out on it. So like the whole, so it's corrupt from beginning to end. And then you can look in the founding of the Federal Reserve and we won't even go there. <laughs> we, we, won't, we, we will not go there because we'll, right, we'll be here, here all day. Another three hours. But another yeah. three hours. Let's go. So, <laughs> okay. So, um, and if you, and independent of the, of, of the effects of it and, and it's in history and where it's came from, where, where fiat currency came from, you know, and the historical warnings about it. If you want to look into the mechanics of it, you can do that. You can do that on your own because that would be a whole, uh, that'd be a whole separate conversation. But what I, what I want to do is bring it back to the question that we started with. Like we've just shown that fiat's currency, fiat currency is, if not inherently evil in itself, it is certainly a very powerful tool that evil uses very skillfully. Correct. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So, in the face of that, and I think we've landed that argument, in the face of that, why should we be thanking God for Bitcoin? Yeah. So Bitcoin, again, as, as we mentioned, you mentioned the term proof of work. That just basically means like it's it's got sowing and reaping built into it. So uh, Bitcoin is is a scarce currency. Um, again, there's there going to be lots of questions about this because, again, the one thing that Bitcoin is not, it's great, but Bitcoin is not super simple. <laughs> right. So Bitcoin, Bitcoin is a, it's a scarce money. There's a fixed supply of Bitcoin that will ever exist. And that number is 21 million. There will only ever be 21 million. Um, there's people who ask questions, well, you know, if this is a, you know, digital money, can't you, what's preventing someone from creating more? It's a big, long, complicated answer, but suffice to say, they can't create more. Like it, it, it the cat's right. out of the bag due to how Bitcoin works. It, it's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one thing. It's a scarce money. Another thing is that it's a decentralized money. So there's no one person who has control over, over, you know, Bitcoin being issued, um, if we're going to use the illustration of the of the gold miner, the prospector, you know, anyone right now can run out into their field. You know, it, or let's say this back when gold was money, anybody could run out into the field, get a pickaxe, dig up in the ground. And if they find gold, the, the, the money belongs to them. They have out of seemingly no, not out of nowhere, but just previously they did not have money. And then they found this money that existed and they they can use it. Bitcoin functions very similarly. Um, rather than it being physical ground for you to dig into, uh, Bitcoin is like a it's like a software program basically that you can participate in and run. And by participating in it and through a process that's either called mining or hashing, um, you can basically try to find new Bitcoin. You use you trade uh, computational power and uh, electricity for the opportunity to try to access new, you know, quote unquote, virgin Bitcoin that's, that's, you know, coming into existence uh, or that's being found. It's really not coming into existence, it's being, being found. So that's very similar to, to how gold operates and very different than something like the Federal Reserve and, and how fiat currency is created. There are central points of money creation um, that are centralized. So you have things like central banks. They're they're actually doing the physical work of create of creating money. Uh, the treasury actually does that. Um, sorry, the treasury actually creates the physical currency. But the vast majority of money that's created today is created digitally. Mm-hmm. Um, you have digital creation of money through the issuance of new debt. Um, so one of that's so when you go to when you go to buy a house. Okay, but let's say there's a 
two um, one million dollar house that's over there. For most people, the way that they buy that house is not by paying cash for that house. It's it, that the money that they're using to buy is not the product of I went out and worked hard for thirty years, I saved up a million dollars, and then I plopped that million dollars down on the table to buy this house. In the vast majority of cases, the way that that the way that the houses are paid for is through the issuance of a mortgage. Mm-hmm. And then that money gets paid to whoever is the, you know, the, it's the, it, the creation of a new debt for a million dollars that gets, you know, created into the world. And then you have to pay back that debt over the course of, of time. So rather than being a debt based money that is, that is issued through a centralized, um, you know, issuer who has godlike control over their, over its issuance, you have the Bitcoin system where there are there are 21 million Bitcoin that are out there and you can you can be one of the people who are out there investing time and money and other resources in order to be able to try to quote unquote dig it up or or access it. Um, so it's it's scarce that way. There's no one central person, central point of issuance. Anyone who wants to can go buy a Bitcoin mining computer and start to start to mine Bitcoin um, that way. You don't have to depend on some government or you know whatever it is. Um, again, there's there's a number, there's a bunch of a bunch of these other things. Um, another thing is that I I can uh, unlike silver and gold, uh, people think about gold and silver as in their tangibility being a benefit, which in, in some ways it is like, it's something you can hold in your hand. And, you know, if, if the, if, uh, you know, like it's something you'd hold in your hand, you can take it with you. It's physical. And people are like, yes, that's a, that's a value proposition. That's also a downside. Uh, it's also got its its limitations. And the best example of this that I have is, so our Venezuelan friends, when they had to flee Venezuela, they wouldn't have been able to bring gold with them. <laughs> like they, they couldn't bring it on a plane or something like that. It'd be too heavy that, you know, because of how, um, because of how expensive gold is, like they would quickly, it, it just would be very, it's, it'd be a nightmare to use in a situation like that. Right. Even more, even more, uh, you know, germane to this point is most of them walked across the Venezuelan border. So imagine you've got a backpack and you've got a couple of gold bars in your backpack. Number one, it, that's heavy. It's, you know, an inconvenient. Also, the people leaving the border because people knew because all these people knew that these Venezuelans were walking across the border, leaving to try to establish life somewhere else. They were walking targets. And so if you're taking your life savings, you're storing your life savings in gold or silver, you're walking across this thing and you get robbed. You're out, you're out to lunch. There's nothing that, you know, you're an easy target for losing everything. The crazy thing with Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Basically you can access it using like a 12 word passphrase. So we're like a, effectively a password. So you can in there in that case you can memorize a twelve word passphrase in your head. You can write it down in a book or something like that. T- tattoo it on your body, whatever you want to do. You can do that across any border in the world. Nobody even knows that you have anything of value. It looks like you have nothing, and then you get to where you're going. You plug in those twelve words, and then you have boom access to your money again. So that the ability to do that is an is like it's a huge game changing. Uh, innovation for the millions of people who are displaced for any one of number of political things going on in their country. Imagine your country is is in a horrible situation. You can leave and start over with real money. Um, th- there's all kinds of ways in which Bitcoin is is advantageous. Um, I'll give one last one. This is the one that I talked to. I got to interview Doug Wilson, and um, oh wow, congratulations! Just, yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. So about I Bitcoin. 
Yeah, I, yeah. So for the last 15 minutes, I talked to him about money for the first 45 minutes, and then the last 15, I went specifically about Bitcoin. But one of the things the I said notes. to him. Oh yeah, cool. Yeah. So, but one of the things I said to him was, Pastor Wilson, I've been thinking about you as it relates to Bitcoin for a long time. I know I through following them on social media, I saw that you guys. I know that you guys have been saving. You didn't want to go into debt. You guys have been saving to build a building for years. And so I said to him, you know, you, you're not exactly a, you know, um, uh, a wilting, uh, what's the, what's the idiom? Like a wilting daisy or something. You don't shy away from saying what you think and what, what the scriptures teach. So like we are, we are in a world now where you could preach a sermon about transgenderism or LGBT or whatever, whatever you want to be. You could preach a sermon and then be debanked for that for expressing those opinions publicly. Like that's, that's nowhere, that's not far from, from happening. We already had the Canadian trucker protest where for exercising, you know, expressing the wrong political opinions, people lost access to their bank accounts overnight. And so Bitcoin enables in that type of world, Bitcoin enables you to have access to your money that isn't mediated by, again, a a banking institution or something along those lines. Um, You can self-custody your Bitcoin and anything from a, you know, an app on your phone or actual things that are called hardware wallets that just basically aren't, you can store them offline in such a way that no, there's no mediating presence giving you access. You can either decide to give you access or to deny you access to uh, to your money. So in in that world, Christians, that's a very valuable thing for Christians here in the United States. But then also in the in context of, as I mentioned earlier, my experience as a missionary, that's an incredible, incredibly valuable tool for missionaries. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are current there are countries such as North Korea and all these different things that have been shut off from access to US banking rails, like the the SWIFT system. They've been closed off from access to it, which again, you can we can debate about how helpful that is. Uh, on one level. But what that also means is that it's much more difficult for gospel workers to get resources into those places as well. And so mm. from a Christian standpoint, Bitcoin is is being used around the world today to send money into impossible or very difficult to reach places, um, places that's very difficult to move resources into any other way. Um, so those are a number of the ways in which I think uh, that I think are compelling reasons for Christians to not just actively just think Bitcoin is the dumbest thing ever. Um, there, there's very real concerns that, that Bitcoin helps alleviate. Men, if you're pursuing physical fitness to any meaningful degree, you know one thing, you need a trainer. No matter whether you're starting out or leveling up, a trainer is the guy who can help you get there with personalized advice, not just a PDF and an occasional reply to your tweets. I know this firsthand because I have a trainer I work with in person every week. He's a good friend I've known for more than three years. We met back at the start of COVID in the same Telegram fitness group that ultimately led me to start the Renaissance of Men. Since then, he and I have walked a long road together, including going from being secular to becoming Christian. Now we live in the same city and even attend Apologia together. So we've got history. Today, following his own remarkable story of redemption, He's a husband, small business owner, and faithful brother in Christ who inspires me, and I couldn't be happier to officially recommend him to you today. His name is Sean O'Brien, and you can visit his outstanding new website at O'BrienFitnessLifestyle.com, linked in the show notes, and there you can find out more about him and what he does to help men and women get fit for God's kingdom. That includes online monthly coaching, 
in-person coaching, and custom gym builds for your home, business, or garage. I'll read you the exact words I wrote in my testimonial on Sean's site. Quote, I've been working out my whole life, but it wasn't until I met Sean that I started training, and that changed everything. I've made more progress with Sean in a year than I did on my own in the previous three years combined. Sean is patient, direct, and responsive. And most of all, he's a kingdom builder who believes that God's kingdom lives in the strong, healthy bodies of godly men and women. If we're going to win down here, that's where it begins. If you give him half a chance, Sean will help you win. He did for me. Hallelujah. And I mean it, which is why Sean is also the head trainer for the Renaissance of Men and the guy I send my clients to. I keep telling men to stop lone wolfing it, thinking they can do it on their own, and that's especially true in fitness. So now, at the start of the year, sign up with Sean. You can visit O'BrienFitnessLifestyle.com to find out more. Again, visit O'BrienFitnessLifestyle.com, and that's O'Brien with an E, to find out more and get fit for God's kingdom today. And I'll see you under the barbell. So, um, so in addition to the individual case of, of, of what the, of how the individual is able to protect their, uh, their accrued wealth, uh, from, um, from being debanked, right. From being financially censored from, you know, the, the looming threat of potentially central bank digital currencies, which is a whole other conversation. Other thing. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, um, and the ability to do missionary work. In you know, with refugees and the ability and, and the portability of it, you know, versus gold bars, et cetera, and the deinflationary ability of it. What we, what the picture that we painted uh, was of the great evil that the United States government has been perpetrating using fiat currency for endless wars and 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 unjust social programs and 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 subsidies and all that stuff. Okay, so maybe maybe we can just spend you know the last few minutes talking about how. How can Christians collectively leverage Bitcoin to push back on the evil behavior of the American government using fiat currency? Like, so we can use Bitcoin as a tool for our own lives and for missionary work out there in the world, et cetera. How can we leverage it back against the wickedness that we're seeing being perpetrated with fiat currency by our own government? Like, how does this fit into that picture? Yeah, I mean, again, I, I think of so I think of Bitcoin primarily as a defensive thing. This this is actually a big okay. debate within the Bitcoin world. Like, there's people who like, there's a, a a guy who's in the U.S. military who named Jason Meyer, uh, Jason Lowry, sorry, who wrote a book called uh, Oh gosh, oh, I can't even remember what it's called. But it's basically he he lays out Bitcoin as a weapon. Oh, that's horrible. I can't remember what it's called. But basically lays out, he, he's talking about Bitcoin as if it's a weapon. And he's his argument is that the United States needs to treat this a, as a weapon. Uh, and and basically, uh, I think you're looking it up. Yeah, please do yeah. let me know when you find it. Um, but uh, Is Bitcoin warfare? Yeah, um, that, I think that sounds right. Something about Bitcoin as weapon. That might be an article. Bitcoin as weapon systems. The, uh, yeah. Yes. So, okay. so that guy, so he is a Bitcoiner and what he's arguing is that the United States need to treat, needs to treat Bitcoin as a strategic weapon and asset. He's not saying like he, he wants the United States to start adopting Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. His thing is basically like there's other nations. This is Soft a, this war. is a thing that, 
Software. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So he's he's saying that this is a this is a resource that has global um, uh, geopolitical implications, and the United States should adopt it as soon as humanly possible. So now that's that's one way to frame it. This is this sure. weapon. Okay. Exactly. Now then, there's a whole another segment of of people, and I tend to be more. Again, there's there's truth in what Lowry's saying, but like I tend to be more partial. To this is like thinking of Bitcoin as a defensive. It's a more of a defensive weapon. It's, okay. it's, it's like a, a shield to protect you. It's to protect wealth, to protect you know just your your savings. You're we're not out there trying to take over the world, <laughs> and you know fight against these things actively. What what Bitcoiners are saying is that this system of fiat currency, everywhere it's been tried, it fails, and so if it's doomed to fail. We should move away from it and be in if it's doomed to fail, if it's going to be doomed to fail at the very end. And in the meantime, it's subsidizing all these awful things. Well, then we should move away from it. So, um, yeah, I think this is so what what should Christians do? I, I think that Christians, one of the simple ways is educating themselves on what money is, how it works. And then on some of the things that are being done in their name and have been done in their name around the world. Part of it's just educational, just understanding what this is and seeing how this relates to things that the priorities and things that God has told us we should care about. Because there is a ton more overlap than the average the average people, uh, the average person is aware of. I'll give I'll plug a couple of books that aren't have any relation to me. Uh, mm-hmm. One of them is. Um, uh, what's it called? Honest Money by Gary North. It's a very short little introduction mm-hmm. um, for a little bit more of a scholarly treatise. It's not, it's not impossible, you know, unapproachable at all, but it's a little bit higher level. Um, there's a book called The Ethics of Money Production um, by an Austrian economist named Jörg Guido Holzman. I'd highly recommend him. Uh, he, Holzman? this book, yeah, Holzman, H-U, I believe it's H-U-L-L, or no, H-U-L-S-M-A-N-N. The, it's the double N. Uh, okay. But it basically, he unpacks the work of this 15th century uh, Catholic bishop named Nicholas Oresme and just basically points to how this guy was, he, he really saw the reality of, of the issues of the ethics of money production. So he just basically called out, I can't remember the prince's name. There was a prince who was, over time, adding baser metals into the money, the, the coin supply. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, rather than having 99% gold, he would, you know, put like, Two percent. You know, one year he'd put two percent of bronze or whatever into the thing. So then, and then the next year he'd put three percent. And so Mm. over time, that was a way. um, And this is what uh, Arezme called out. He said, basically, you're stealing. You're stealing from the people by by convincing them to use something. Calling you're saying that it's a hundred percent or ninety nine percent. In reality, it's less than that. And with that spread, you're you're enlarging your own ability. Your political power is basically what you're doing. Is is a earlier version of what's happening in Venezuela. So that book is fantastic. I'd highly recommend to try to get a grasp around these issues and why they matter. Um, those, those two books, depending on who you are, are, are good resources um, on that front. But so again, education is a, is part of this and just understanding, um, you know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set, shall set you free. Obviously the context of that, you know, when Jesus is saying that is, is about salvation. Uh, but this is also true of truth more broadly. Truth, when we see the truth, it helps us to, to live more skillfully and more accurately to, you know, according to the way that God designed the world to live. So education is a big part of it. Another part is just buying Bitcoin <laughs> mm-hmm. and just like learning, like interacting with it. And it needs to be five bucks worth of Bitcoin, just like buying it 
and, and interacting with it, just so you see how it is, it can be intimidating, as I mentioned, to, to kind of describe and talk about and you know explain all the different facets of it. But you don't need to understand all those things in order to use it any more than you need to understand how a computer works in order to benefit from it. You know, everyone uses computers and the vast majority of us don't know at all how they work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would be the, the other thing I would say was just, you know, look at um, just start start buying some of it. And, and then just using it or whatever, interacting with it. Uh, that would be my recommendation. Um, another thing would just be looking more intentionally at, again, the systems that are in our lives. So you have things like, I mean, educational system. Again, we mentioned this earlier. The, one, the reason why the educational system in the United States, the public education system can produce and, and subsidize you know, or can you know, foster all this insanity is because they are the one funding it. And so just taking taking stock of the fact that your money has power and your money is subsidizing messages and entities, whether you want to or not, that's just the reality. And so asking yourself the question, am I subsidizing what I actually believe or am I, am I giving life to things that deserve to die and that never should have existed in the first place? I think that's another, another thing, uh, like an action step that I, that I would mention. I think that I'm sure there's others, but those are three that off the top of my head that think would be helpful. Yeah. I mean, as I was, as I was listening to you talk your way through all those things, I'm just thinking back to all the people that I've interviewed about Bitcoin, you know, Jimmy song fiat ruins everything. Like we maybe touched on Bitcoin as a, you know, as a subject at the very end of that interview, if at all, because his book is all about the ways that fiat currency specifically does ruin everything. Like it's a yep. great book to read for that, it is. you know, and, and uh, probably my best podcast of all, all time, was laser awesome. hodl which was like oh yeah uh, yeah yeah like that the five hour the longest the longest podcast ever like my favorite <laughs> one love that guy love that guy yep. so you know that was a couple that was a couple years ago i think it was and yep. uh you know that lays out the geo what we might call the geopolitical case right yep. for for bitcoin i think about the bitcoin coach which is like how to get started with it you know andrew howard like all these different conversations and i'm very grateful for this one because it's really laid out in very stark and clear terms the moral and even theological case, you know, yeah. behind why Christians specifically should be thinking about this. Like, yeah. like, like this is a, this is why I'm interested in this topic. This isn't just like some hobby. Like I like building model airplanes. So I'm going to force all my listeners to listen to me interview exactly. guys who are into model Indulge airplanes. <laughs> exactly. Indulge <laughs> me as I talk about, no, like this matters. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, okay. So, so you and I met at, at, at your conference and, and, and that it's a, the, the Thank God for Bitcoin project is a larger project. I want to give you a chance to talk about everything that you're doing there with your podcast and the books and, and the things that you have. So, so spend some time, please, talking about the, the magnitude and the scope of the things that you do. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, so, yeah, we went at the conference. We, we do at least, basically, we do a, several, a couple events every year. Uh, the biggest one, we do one big event, uh, which the last two years has been in Miami. It's just the TGFB conference. So we did TGFB 22, TGFB 23, and then this year will be TGFB 24. This will be our third year. Um, and so what we do, uh, basically, we the last this past year, we talked about Bitcoin for two days. We did a two-day event. You know, did it as cheaply as we could, as we could, pricing wise, and then just spent two days. Uh, day one was just introducing what is Bitcoin. It was basically designed to be a place where if you know nothing about Bitcoin, you can come and get like an, a quick little crash course on what it is, uh, how it works. You know, the some on the ethics of of money production, the some of the stuff we've talked about, and then in day two 
we did more of like applying those things. So what are ways and places in which Bitcoin is being used around the world in, in ways that maybe are not intuitive? Um, and so, so we have, again, people from all walks of life, uh, people who are, I mean, we had, I think, three or four pastors who were there who spoke who were Bitcoiners. Um, and again, the, the, the emphasis is not, like only a part of the emphasis is, is Bitcoin as investment. What, what we're talking about, that absolutely, I mean, again, that absolutely is part of this because money is is part of our life and investing is part of our life. Um, but a big part of this is just understanding some of what we talked about, just the dynamics and ways that money affects people differently all over the world. Just there's, there's, I mean, we could spend literally another eight hours unpacking all these different ways in which for, for good or for ill, mm. uh, people are being helped and or affected by money. So we, we wanted to f- you know, foster and facilitate a place for that conversation to happen, um, just to start that conversation. Uh, beyond that, we have the Thank God for Bitcoin podcast. Uh, at this point, that's primarily conversations like this one. It's primarily mm. conversations where um, you know, we're, we're just talking to people who are Bitcoiners um, about why they care about Bitcoiners. There's people who are, who are programmers who work within the industry. There's other people who are Again, pastors who talk about different aspects of it. We talk to, again, just all kinds of different walks of life who are Christians and Bitcoiners uh, or who whose stories will benefit Christian Christians and or Bitcoiners. So, for instance, we had um, uh, BJ Dichter, who is the the mouthpiece or the, the representative for the Canadian trucker protest. Um, mm. He was like the the person, the spokesperson for them. That's the word I was like for spokesperson. And so he came out. He's not a Christian, uh, but has a wild story. And and so basically, again, this the thing that I mentioned with Doug Wilson. I, this has been something that I'd been thinking about for a long time. And then this was like a perfect use case for Bitcoin. And he just talks about how Bitcoin enabled them to continue to uh, do the protests when they got cut off from their bank accounts. There were people who donated Bitcoin to them, and it was the one money that they weren't able to, or that they were able to access. The government couldn't shut them off from. So. We foster those kind of um, conversations. We also, I, uh, I'm also the co-host of another podcast called Thank God for Noster, um, mm-hmm. where Bitcoin is decentralized money. Uh, Noster is a decentralized information protocol. Mm. And so the idea is that it's an information protocol that you can't just, so you can't get canceled from. Uh, so whereas Twitter, they can cancel my Twitter account and all of a sudden I can't, I can't access it anymore. You, you can't, it's, it's a communication network that you can't be cut off from. So I host that podcast with another Christian guy who's a developer in the Noster space. Uh, and so we, we have those that, again, fostering very similar conversations. There's some overlap, but it, it's, there's enough, enough not overlap that, we, uh, that justify the other podcast. Um, I have another podcast that's kind of on the back burner that's called The Economics of Glory, where we just go through, uh, go through biblical passages, uh, f- looking at them through an economic lens. Uh, the scriptures talk a ton about money. Jesus talks a ton about money. And there's a lot of, there's just a lot for us to, a lot for Christians to like to learn and, and, and see that maybe that we're just not used to, to seeing when we, when we think about the scripture. So um, I've only got a couple, I think one or two episodes up for that one. And it's going to be again, more of a personal project at this point. Um, this coming year, the conference, I'll just give a little quick summary of that this year. What we're going to do is we want to do a one day day. It's going to be a two day event, uh, July 24th and 25th in Nashville. Mm. We'd love to have you guys there. Um, and basically what we're going to do this year is day one is just going to be an introduction to a robust Christian vision of economics. 
um, we're not even going to talk about Bitcoin on day one. Like we're going to get into like, what does the scripture say about money? Um, we're going to have different kinds of speakers from all over the, all over the country who are, you know, experts in their field. Um, we already have confirmed CR Wiley is going to be joining us again. Uh, he's mm. going to be speaking about household economics. Um, we're also going to have Dr. Ben Merkel uh, is going to oh, wow. be there. Uh, talking about like the role of uh, the role that money plays in uh, in education and why they've made why they at New St Andrews College have made the decisions that they've made uh, about the sources of funding that they will and will not accept. Um, so that's looking forward to that. And then we're going to have again, we're still looking for. There's a number of people who we've reached out to, and we're just still working on getting them there uh, that are are more well known within the the Christian finance world. Mm. Um, so again, we, the the one that we it doesn't seem to be possible, but the the big the big whale would be Dave Ramsey uh, because he's been a pretty vocal uh, opponent of of Bitcoin, but he's also mm. based in Nashville. So uh, we're we're working on that. If if there's anyone out there who you know wants to pray on our behalf that we could we could make that happen, that'd be fun. Uh, but yeah, so day one is just intro to economics from a Christian perspective, from a biblical biblical perspective, and then day two is again very similar, just intro to to what Bitcoin is and and how it works and. Um, so yeah, so that's what we're, that's what we're doing. You can find out more information at, uh, tgfb.com about, you know, all of those things. Uh, and then if you want to buy tickets for the event, the event, uh, you can find those at tgfb.com slash store. Um, so yeah, that's who we are, what we're doing, uh, doing, you know, podcasts and events. And then again, looking to do some more consulting for different, uh, Christian organizations who are, are ready to at least ask questions, if not take the step of buying Bitcoin and all those kind of stuff. We offer consulting services there too. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Do you want to talk for a minute about your book? Sure. Yeah, actually. Yeah. There's so I really yeah, loved your cool. book by the way. Awesome. No, I'm happy to hear that. And again, that was that was an incredible. <laughs> just a, I never imagined. I, I had thought that maybe someday I would write a book about something. Uh, you know, whether our experiences in Uruguay or something along those lines. Never thought I would write a book about money, uh, and so ended up writing this book about Bitcoin. Um, that just basically, again, is just designed to be a summation of of the kind of the conversation that we've had, and then we get into Bitcoin in the last two chapters. It's written at a ninth grade reading level. Uh, it's designed to be just your average person who doesn't, who's never thought about, you know, money production before, just kind of in, an introduction to the, to the topic. So that's what Thank God for Bitcoin is. Uh, you can find that on, uh, <laughs> on Amazon or anywhere else, you know, books are sold. Um, I think the craziest thing for me, I'll, I'll share this story. I, I don't know how many Roman Catholic listeners you have, but uh, hopefully they'll forgive me. But the, one of the too. craziest the craziest thing that happened related to the, to the book was that the book, we, I always joked that we got to experience every Protestant's uh, dream, which was, <laughs> thank God for Bitcoin, came out the same week as a book by the Pope, and we were outselling the Pope. We were like, take that, Bang. Bishop of Rome, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Very satisfying. Uh, exactly. So that was that's the first book. And then we I have, I have three other books in the works. Um, we have a kid's book that's going to be called The Orange Umbrella. It's basically a Bitcoin intro that never mentions Bitcoin. Uh, again, talks about a lot of these things in a, in a more humorous and, and fun way. Uh, we have another book called The Gospel According to Bitcoin. That just basically, whereas Thank God for Bitcoin was designed to introduce Bitcoin to Christians, The Gospel According to Bitcoin is designed to introduce uh, uh, Jesus to Bitcoiners. Hmm. Uh, and so that book is hopefully going to come out within the next two or three months here. Uh, and then the the one that's kind of like my it's going to take a while longer uh, is it's uh, going to be called the my, the working title is uh, through new uh, money through new eyes the economics of glory is basically what it is it's just unpacking unpacking money itself th through a biblical lens and there's just all kinds of surprising 
yeah, just things that have just kind of blown my mind over the last five years that I've been, you know, thinking about money and, and, you know, working through these lenses. So those things are all in various different stages of, of production and, and hopefully those will be out and, and helpful to people as soon as possible. You are into a lot of things, sir. <laughs> and that's, that's why it's like, yeah, get a bunch of things burning, but I'm also, you know, I'm also a dad of young kids. And so all of these things, they just have to do, have to work on them in ways that, uh, in ways and according to time schedules that, uh, yeah, that work for everybody. So again, this mm-hmm. is why some of them are going to take longer than others. But mm-hmm. I will say just real quick, just to, just to bring it all back. Like when I was on the way to to the conference, not knowing anything about it, but just knowing that I wanted to go check out what you know Cr Wiley had to say about it, because um, yeah. I'd just been at the Trad Dad conference. I read "Thank God for Bitcoin" on the plane, and it was one of those books that I was and I was already into Bitcoin at the time, but it was one of those books that permanently shifted the way that I saw mm-hmm. things. And really, and really opened my eyes to where the root of social problems today mm-hmm. come from, which is the unjust money supply. Like I saw in a, in a totally new way. So it was a really, it was a really transformative experience reading that book. So Man, thank you I'm for glad that. To, I'm glad to hear that. Oh, I'm really glad to hear that. And again, it's like we're it, it's one of these books where, again, like there's so much more. There's so much more that could have been said and that could have been put in there, and t- especially on on like a from like again a biblical an exhaustive biblical level. And, and right. because there's so much more, like we said, that's kind of what, that's what the thrust of this, you know, the economics of glory book is going to be. But again, for, for what it is and for the purpose that it was written and, and for the response that we've received to it, it's been, it's kind of blown our minds. I mean, we've sold a bunch of books and again, it served to be that introduction to this, this topic that we were hoping that it would be. So praise God, man. Thank you so much for the work that you're doing and, and, and all the, and all the people that are helping you and helping to, uh, to bring this message to, People who Christians who I, I hope are are getting ready to hear it, um, yeah. and and I think that that will be an increasing theme in in the months and years to come, God willing. Yep, hope so. Yep, cool, man. Well, uh, I'm guessing you want to send everyone to tgfb.com. Yep, yeah, tgfb.com again, tgfb.com/store if you're interested in in coming to the conference, uh, and then you can also you can find me on uh, on Twitter or I refuse to call it X. So Twitter, <laughs> I, I refuse. I'm like it's just so dumb, it's but yeah. So on. Twitter, uh, my handle is at J.M. Bush writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm sure we can put that in the show notes or something. But yeah, yep. and then if you and if you want to want to talk uh, again, I'm happy for you to you know, chat and reach out. If you reach out there, I'm happy to chat and you know help out in any way that I can. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jordan. I really appreciate this whole conversation and all the work that you do. Cool. Thank you, man. For again, I know all the work that goes into the producing podcasts and the time it takes to prepare and all that kind of stuff. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.